Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Christopher Sabri on the podcast. Christopher is Associate Professor of Psychology and Co-Director of the Neuroscience Program at Union College, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Neurology at Albany Medical College, and a research affiliate at the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence. In his book, The Invisible Gorilla, co-authored with Daniel Simons, presents the results of research into attention and other cognitive illusions. He also writes the new column, Game On, in the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much, Chris, for being here today. Thanks for having me here. I really like the title of that column, Game On. Did you come up with that? And I had nothing to do with it. I gave them several suggestions, and they were all summarily rejected, and the editors picked a better <laughs> one. Do you find that happens? Um, uh, has it ever happened to you before with like an article you wrote where they just like put this title that you're not happy with? I mean, obviously, you're probably happy with this title, but um, <laughs> in, in the past, though? Uh, yeah, that, that happens, I would say, fairly often, although much more often than that. The title that the editors come up with is is either better or probably results in more people reading it, which ultimately is is what you want. I don't want to be writing stuff for a, gen- a general audience or a popular audience and then have them not read it because the title wasn't sexy enough to make them click or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've never complained to the editor that I can recall and told them to change the title or told them I didn't like the title or something like that. But there's certainly been have been some times when I, I thought I had come up with something really clever, but it just didn't, you know, didn't make it in at all. What would be your limits though, in terms of clickbait? Like where do you draw the line? Like if they're like click here, you know, for um, <laughs> naked penguins dancing, like would, <laughs> would you be like not happy with that? <laughs> and then it's, and then it's my article about replication and psychology or something like yeah, that. Exactly, yeah. Well, I, exactly. I think I would be, I think I would be unhappy with that. I, I've seen some articles published where the, the title definitely actually contradicts 
you know, what's being said or, yeah, or makes or, or, or overly exaggerates the, the claims yeah. that are that are being made. And I think if the if the topic is science or behavioral science or anything about, you know, that has even remotely to do with critical thinking or yeah, yeah. rationality or public policy, then the author should go back and say, you know, that that title is, is misleading. Um, and uh, I, I think some some authors don't do that. I actually think probably academics who write for a, a popular audience are probably a little more sensitive to that because normally they write their own titles for journal articles and they write the abstracts and so on. But then when yeah. when, when when the you know when, when the editors of a newspaper, or magazine, or website sort of write the write the search engine text and all and all that stuff, you I think you you should go back to it and make sure it's it's accurate because otherwise, you know, ninety nine percent of the readers will just read the title. They're never going to read past that, so they might think that. Scott Barry Kaufman is saying something ridiculous when actually that's not what you said in the article. That's just what the editor put there. Yeah, and it's particularly frustrating when it like takes all the nuance that you've spent your whole career working on out of it. So that happened to me in that case. In our, they took an excerpt from my book on Gifted um, in Slate and they called it – basically the excerpt was about how we need to um, be more sensitive to the kinds of tests we use to assess learning disabilities. Um, and we need to like – basically we need to like use the test more sensibly. But they called it Why IQ Tests Are Useless. <laughs> and, and, and it's so funny that they also probably, you know, shortly after that published, you know, articles by me and Zach Hambrick about why, why IQ tests are so great, you yeah, know, so it's not as yeah. though they're even trying to push a consistent line, right? They're trying to get no. people to read the articles. Yeah, that's exactly you know? right. And, and I, you probably don't want to be on, on the record as saying IQ tests are useless. So did you ask them to change it and did they, did they change it? I'm I'm really trying to remember. I guess I need a Google to really remember if it was changed. Um, I do think I did make a request. I was like, this is a bit strong. <laughs> in, in my experience, they're actually pretty sensitive to that. But it could be that I write. It could be that the publications that I write for, you know, happen to have editors who, you know, e- either care about getting those things right or maybe care about having me write for them again. Whereas there might be other websites that. Basically, it's a difference between making money and losing money, whether they can write an outrageous headline and they might not be as receptive to that kind of (laughs) to that kind of author feedback. I don't I don't know. I haven't really run into that yet. Yeah, their incentives might be different. Sure. Um, Well, since we opened, I I kind of just opened up this can of worms with IQ. I mean, why not? Why don't we just dive into that topic? And um, there's a lot of topics we could talk about, but I think this is a good one. Um, one one of the good ones, yeah. So you've done research, some really interesting recent research on the genetics of IQ, um, finding that a lot of the uh, the genes that that prior researchers have found are, are statistically associated, even though they're obviously very small effects. You found they don't really replicate. Is that right? That's true. So uh, the the short story is that uh, you know we've known for a long time that that IQ whatever you think it corresponds to in the real world or whatever the right sort of dictionary definition of it is, whatever it is that IQ tests are measuring is measured, you know, across the population very reliably. And it's, it's always found to be significantly heritable. It's one of the most heritable behavioral traits um, that, that we know about. So we know that from twin studies and family studies and so on. And, and for about 15 years, um, people have been doing what are called candidate gene studies, which are studies where they, they they think about a particular gene that because of something known about its role in, in brain function or biology, you know, might have something to do with differences in, um, in intelligence between individuals or at least in, you know, in IQ test scores. Okay. And so they'll, they'll collect a sample of people and, and, and genotype a bunch of them for some variants of this gene. Often these, these genes are kind of things you think about like dopamine related genes or, uh, you know, genes involved in, in the synapse or something like that. Uh, and the study will uh, report the results of genotyping one gene. It'll say, well, lo and behold, the people who have this particular variant 
uh, you know, score 1.7 IQ points higher for each copy of that variant that they have, or maybe even more than that. Uh, and this was significant, P less than 0.05. And uh, what it turns out uh, is that most of those results just purely do not replicate at all when you use a much larger sample. So these sample sizes are typically in the dozens to hundreds. Um, several colleagues and I, I think we maybe had 14 authors on this paper ultimately, put together three data sets with about 10,000 total subjects and tested 10 of these genes um, and uh, found that basically none of them replicate. One of them replicated once in one sample, but then basically in the opposite direction in another sample. So those kind of cancel each other out. Uh, and right, that right. literature is basically full of false positives, as, as a lot of the literature that you'll find that say, you know, there's a particular gene associated with trust or a particular gene associated with altruism or right. a particular gene associated with neuroticism or something or something like that. Almost all of that, that research, I think, regrettably, is uh, represents false positive uh, results. Yeah. And some people could falsely, like especially how it's portrayed in the media, some people could falsely think that results suggest that there is no genetic component to intelligence or genetic component to IQ. And th instead it suggests that it's like much, it's going to be much more difficult to find the ones, uh, the, the many, many, it's, there's never going to be a single gene that replicates. Do you think it's a power issue? Do you think it's probably a combination of issues? What are some of the issues on the table for you? Right. So it's, it's a mistake to think that if we haven't found the gene for X, that that means no that genetic, X is yeah. not genetic, right? So, so X, you know, a, a trait could be genetic without having uh, any one gene. In fact, most genetic traits are not single gene traits. Height is a perfect example, right? Everybody knows that height is heritable and it's genetic and everybody accepts that. Obviously, you know, your height down to the millimeter is not determined by your genes. There's also diet and, you know, and, and other expo environmental exposures and, uh, and, and so on that make a big difference. But um, within a population, most differences in height seem to be caused by differences in uh, in genes. But we found out through, you know, gradual research by a lot of, of, of great researchers that this is because there are hundreds or thousands of genes that affect height. And each one, you know, gives you a fraction of a millimeter, basically, you know, which is which is not yeah. not very much. And our our work um, and, and the work of especially of the Social Science Genetic Association Consortium, which, which is really doing all this work with respect to behavioral traits with the largest samples, that work has found that the same is true for behavioral traits. So, um, you know, any, any typical behavioral trait, we think, is based on hundreds or thousands of genes, each one of which has a very tiny effect. It's not to say that you can't be extreme on some trait because of a single gene. So there, there are many genetic variants which cause intellectual disability. You know, formerly known as mental retardation and so on, score, cause, cause scoring very low on, on IQ tests, like super, right. you know, super low, um, like off the charts low. Um, and that, you know, fragile X, uh, you know, there are many, many are even known by, by the names of genes. But um, we're talking about sort of like normal range variation um, doesn't seem to be caused by single genes or just a handful of genes, but hundreds or thousands. Right. And, and again, that doesn't mean that there is an environmental component as well. I just want to make – I want to, I, you know, I thought this podcast could be really good to kind of like talk about lots of misconceptions about lots of this stuff. So even if there is a – and there there is a, a genetic component to IQ, uh, I don't think that's in doubt at all. Um, that doesn't mean that, um, that there aren't a lot of genes involved, A. Lots of those genes um, – uh, are certainly interacting with each other as well as the environment. Um, so, 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 some people might like incorrectly conclude that just because there's a genetic component, there isn't an environmental component, or that this, these things can change. 
Um, what are your own personal thoughts on the changeability or trainability of IQ? And do you think the current methods are, um, for lack of a better word, crap? <laughs> Well, um, there's a lot. So there, there are a lot of issues in in, in what you in, in what you went over. Um, Feel free uh, to un- unpack some of it. Yeah. So let me. Yeah. So let me try to unpack those a little bit. I, I guess one of them is that uh, it's certainly true that um, all traits, pr- pretty much all behavioral traits, are uh, affected both by heredity and environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the proportion may vary, um, and it's also important to keep in mind that you know all measures of the effect of uh, environmental variation, which is which is mostly, it turns out, um, uh, how uh, individuals' environments differ from each other. The effect of family environments generally seems to be pretty small in behavior genetic studies. So basically, the effect of which family you're raised in is smaller than um, the effect of all the other different environmental exposures you have uh, in your life, which in turn tends to be smaller than the, than the cumulative effect of genetic variation. But that is all with respect to sort of our current you know, our, our current um, social and cultural arrangements uh, and our current technologies, right? Um, so the classic example of this is, is eyesight. Um, uh, you know, visual acuity uh, would, um, uh, is very, visual acuity is very heritable, but of course we have this technology called glasses and contact lenses, which basically, you know, change everybody's effective vision back to the normal range, uh, even though just, you know, in, in a world without glasses, then some people would see very badly and, uh, you know, that would be determined mostly by genes, uh, right? But in a world with glasses, you know, where if everybody has access to glasses, then everybody's vision is is quite corrected. So you could imagine some technology, which is like eyeglasses, but for the brain, which sort of like ramp up everybody's brain function, you know, up into a level where everybody's within this narrow band, like pretty much able to read the eye chart, like we're all able to read, you know, yeah. the first like five lines of the eye chart. And that's yeah. enough, you know, for successful functioning and, you know, in life, you could imagine that technology for height, you could imagine that technology for IQ, you could imagine it for, you know, for anything. It hasn't, you know, unfortunately, it hasn't been discovered yet. I think what's unfortunate kind of is that People seem to think or want to believe that the ability to raise your IQ, you know, whatever IQ actually is, people seem to want to raise it. And they seem to believe that the ability to raise it is, is a lot simpler and, and more easily discover and readily available than it is. So you, you can go back to like the Mozart effect, right? Just listening to, you know, uh, Mozart's music for 10 minutes. Um, you can go to, uh, you know, playing, uh, you know, uh, certain kinds of, you know, video games or training certain kinds of, you know, boring, repetitive cognitive tasks like working memory or, you know, running current through your running electrical current through your brain to stimulate your brain. TDSC, TDSC, yeah, Yeah, transcranial uh, direct current stimulation, right? I mean, there's, um, there's all kinds of these, these fads. And in general, um, you know, the, the results of, I think there are two interesting things about the results of those. One are that they have trouble replicating also. So often yeah. when independent labs try to replicate that, that research, they, they can't do it. This is what happened with the Mozart effect. This is what seems to have happened largely with working memory training. And the other thing to consider also is that um, making someone's score go up on an IQ test uh, is not the same as increasing um, their general intelligence, yeah. right? So yeah. an IQ test is a good indicator of general intelligence you know, in some environments, but imagine an environment where everyone had all the answers to the test, right? Well, then it would no longer be a measure of intelligence. It wouldn't be a measure of anything, in fact, because everyone would get every question right, right? So that would just, would just drop to zero sensitivity. Or imagine a world where, you know, half the people, 
you know, had bought the answers to the test and the other half of the people didn't even know they were for sale, right? Well, then you're going to get, you know, then, then the IQ test is no longer valid, right? So it could be that if you, um, if you make people better at taking IQ tests, it might not translate into an actual increase in intelligence. Right. Not necessarily. I want to just clarify, not necessarily, but it is possible actually that increase in IQ is indicative. Yeah, it's possible. So for example, the increase in IQ over the last hundred years or so that comes from the the Flynn effect, I tend to believe is real. Some people laugh at me for that and some smart people do. (laughs) And other other people think it's an artifact and so on. But I I, I sort of take seriously the idea that, uh, you know, the average 20 year old today is significantly smarter in some real sense than the average 20 year old 100 years ago or 50 years ago. I agree. And I, I would I would I would narrow that down to fluid reasoning as being of critical uh, development as opposed to maybe more like vocabulary and things of that nature. But let's talk a little bit about um, about the, the concept of intelligence and the measurement of IQ. Mm-hmm. First, the first question I want to ask you, do you think IQ is the best measure we have today of intelligence? And do you see any other things that, that are missing in the IQ test that you think do belong under the umbrella conceptually of intelligence? I think it, I think you know it really of course depends on how you define intelligence right so if you're going to define intelligence as Absolutely. you know yeah. a, any kind of useful ability you know then no if you're going to define intelligence as something um close to traditional definitions of it that have been used in the field of psychology um then yes and I, I think it's 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 almost inevitably the answer is yes because you know, IQ tests have sort of evolved almost by natural selection, you know, in a way to, to optimize the measurement of those things. Like when, when you make an IQ test, you know, you get rid of the items that don't load on, uh, you know, on the first factor. If you want to make a one measure IQ test, I mean, you, you deliberately, you know, construct them that way. So it's almost tautological that they, you know, that, that, that they measure, you know, intelligence as, as defined in some traditional way. But what I sort of yeah. don't like, what I, what, what I sort of don't like is I, I don't like um, very much the use of the term intelligence as a generic term for, you know, any desirable skill. So okay. I've, I use the word social intelligence myself. I think there are sort of some legitimate uses of that. But once we start saying there's emotional intelligence, there's practical intelligence, there's social intelligence, there's kinesthetic intelligence, mating. there's all mating. these things. Mating, mating intelligence, right. I mean, I, I, I sort of, you know, I sort of get the point there that like you, you can do these things better or worse. You can have, you know, there are certain, you know, um, skills and abilities and so on, which will make you better and worse at these things. But I think we lose something when we just call all of those things different kinds of intelligence. Now, you know, maybe there are, you know, I, I'm sure there are reasons, you know, to, to do that. But I, I think it, I, I, to me, it, it obscures a little more than that it helps. I think I've softened my, my my tone a little bit on that somewhat. You know, like I'm I'm willing cool. to use the, the phrase I'm willing to use the phrase social intelligence. Um, yeah. Because I, I sort of you know I I've come to believe more and more that. Uh, you know, there is a distinction within the brain and I'm going to speak very broadly, you know, I'm not going to speak as sort of like it's any kind of detailed neuroscience level that I, that I can't back up with citations, but I think there is pretty broadly a distinction between um, neural systems that um, seem to have, you know, evolved for the purpose of thinking about other people and neural systems that seem to have evolved, you know, for the purpose of doing more abstract, you know, general kinds of reasoning. Um, so an IQ test might be a very good method of assessing the function of one of those particular neural systems. One of my current research projects is to tr- try to d- develop better tests of, quote, social intelligence, which I conceptualize as like assessing the function of that other, you know, that other network in the brain or that other that other collection of, 
um, of brain regions. But all that's but all that said, and sorry to sort of keep on you know rambling here. All all that said, I think uh, it turns out that intelligence, as measured by IQ tests, you know whatever brain network is is supporting that, and brain networks are supporting that, and so on, is incre- turns out to be incredibly predictive of you know a wide range of outcomes in present day society. Um, you know, from you know occupation, job performance. Income, education, mortality, lifespan, I mean, all kinds of things. And, and there can be very complex pathways by which it is predictive of all those things, right? Like, why does intelligence predict longevity? There could be lots of different reasons for that. Um, but if we ignore that, uh, if we ignore, you know, those facts, we're going to wind up making wrong conclusions in all the policies we come up with about things like health, you know, and, and uh, you know, financial savings and, um, you know, uh, social organizations, schools, you know, and, and so on. I think I think we can't sort of pretend that, you know, that doesn't exist or it's not a significant, you know, f- uh, factor to take into into consideration. We shouldn't say that it's everything, but but nor should we pretend that it's nothing. So you said a lot of really good things there. And I, gr- I agree. I agree <laughs> with I agree with an awful lot of that. Um, I think um, a very uh, tricky thing. Um, something has been difficult for me in my career is that I started off, I wanted to learn as much as I could about intelligence, and I didn't step out into the real world at all. So I, st- you know, there was a, there was a period of, let's say, 10 years where I, like, did the most, I tried to do the most rigorous science I could, try to publish in the most highest scientific journal articles, and just understand what is the, you know, biological and environmental basis of IQ. I studied with, uh, you know, Nick McIntosh at Cambridge, um, who wrote, I think, the best textbook on the topic. Um, his, by the way, he agrees, he would agree, he would He's uh, he just passed away recently, unfortunately. But he um, would agree with you that um, uh, that there's value in separating talent from intelligence. You know, specific talents from the general concept of um, intelligence or the concept of general intelligence. Put it differently. Um, so you would say there's value in that. So I, I I spent a good ten years trying to really study this up, and then I you know got into this 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 very fascinating world called education, where you have so many kids falling between the cracks. Um, and there are so many reasons why kids are falling between the cracks. One major reason, I think, is because of our of the teachers' um, conceptualizations they bring to the classroom of of what are the indicators of um, potential, or what are the indicators of what kids are capable of achieving. Um, do you think there's benefit? Because I I do think there's benefit in an education context, and I still try. By the way, I still publish papers, and I still talk about the construct of intelligence. But when I enter the world of education. I see value in having a broader conceptualization of intelligence that at least allows um, for di- different, like um, different indicators from students that we could nurture. Well, not every concept that that comes from scientific psychology, I think, is necessarily right for sort of you know direct insertion into any particular outside context. I mean, I'll give you an example. There, I I'm not sure we're learning much directly from neuroscience, from cognitive neuroscience, from fMRI that should really make a difference at all in how we in how we teach children. I think one day we will, but I'm not sure we're there yet. And yet it's sort of like the hot thing from my outsider's perspective, you know, educational neuroscience and and so on. I, I'm not sure that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, you know, that that's really, you know, a, applicable. Uh, and also the, the fact that something as a construct like general intelligence um, predicts significant variation across, you know, thousands of people in mm-hmm. um, occupation or something like that, you know, obviously doesn't mean that for any one person, it right. sets up or lower bounds. And I think that's, that's a clear mistake that people make 
you know, over and over again is they, 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 they don't really quite appreciate the variability. Like if you, mm-hmm. if you have someone who scores, you know, if you, if you have someone who scores, you know, 90 on an IQ test, they're, they're less likely to get a PhD in psychology than someone who scores, uh, you know, 130. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. So the mistake is to say, well, you're doomed. You know, you're never going to go any farther than this. And it, it, admittedly, people who, you know, studied IQ and, you know, uh, in, you know, 50, you know, 60, 80, 100 years ago, you could see these tables, you know, even even maybe more recently that said, like, here are the occupations that are suitable for you, you know, based on your test score. Right. But there's so many things that could have could cause low test scores. There's so many other, you know, traits that could be important. There's so many other ways they could combine in any one person, uh, you know, different ways of doing the same job and so on. It's, it's sort of too narrow a conception for that. But at Absolutely. the same time, you can't throw you, you, you can't, you can't throw it out as a social, you know, as, as a social science variable, as a social science variable, it's incredibly powerful, you know, and, and explains a lot about the way our present, you know, present societies, um, you know, are organized and function. Um, but that yeah. doesn't mean that for any one person, you know, like look at, you know, look at someone like Bobby Fischer, like, you know, Bobby Fischer, world chess champion, like essentially was was schizophrenic. And I think a lot of people in chess are only now sort of coming to grips with that, you know, that he was at least schizotypal and, you know, probably, you know, a very high but a very high functioning schizophrenic, like the best chess player ever. You know, and it's something that's considered a very cognitive, intellectual, you know, pursuit and so on. I mean, we science, you know, behavioral science is never good at explaining one person. Like, well, how does behavioral that, science explain Hitler? Nobody, you know, you can't. Like, you can't explain Hitler by doing surveys and calculating correlations and so on. You know, it's not going to, it's yeah. not going to happen. Or even probably looking at his brain. Well, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, this goes back to like a longstanding, you know, argument about what's the right level, you know, of analysis in psychology and so on. Like, you can't really understand how the brain works by looking at the neurons. It's even harder when you're trying to understand one person, right? And, um, the thing with Bobby Fischer is very interesting because schizotypy is correlated with apahenia, which is the um, human tendency to see patterns that don't really exist. Right. Yet he was like a master at like actually seeing patterns that no, seeing patterns that do exist <laughs> that he's built up through many years of expertise. And well, <laughs> do, you, do you see my point? So I'm like, yeah. Although it, it, uh, in yeah. Yes. And so in chess, so apparently, you know, this, this again speaks to the idea that, you know, a lot of, um, a, a lot of things that we can become experts in are really about domain specific learning, you know, not necessarily about any kind of limit set by our general intelligence or our personality traits. Right. So I'm, I'm right. sure that Bobby Fischer's ability to recognize patterns in chess, you know, was probably largely independent, almost entirely independent of his ability to recognize patterns in whether the Jews are controlling everything in the world and ruining his life, right? Exactly. Those two kinds of patterns are, are really different patterns and probably governed, you know, uh, you know, governed in some ways by, yeah. by, by different, you know, systems, or, or at least all the chess knowledge he learned was sort of like probably encapsulated and set aside from, you know, from all of his other thinking difficulties, which manifested themselves more and more as, as his life went on. So that's right. That's, that's, I think that's probably the explanation. And you see that with John Nash as well. Although his, well, his math suffered, his math suffered, I think. Yeah. But. Well, right. If you, if you, right. Okay. So if you, if you, if you become completely psychotic, right, it's going to be hard to actually like yeah. devote time to, yeah. you know, doing your work and so on. But, but again, going, going back to intelligence, right. I, I think it, it stands to reason that, you know, someone who's starting out, you know, as, as someone who regularly scores 130 on IQ tests will probably find it a little bit easier to become a chess grandmaster than someone who regularly scores a lot lower than that. But it doesn't mean that the, the lower scorers can't do it or that they're somehow, you know, incapable or, or whatever. So, you know, there, there's talent and there's experience. There's, there's both of those. There's both of those things, right? Yeah. So we can, we can include general intelligence as a talent, just like you have any other kinds of talents. 
There's no sure. reason why that source of human variation isn't just another talent, and it has meaningful implications um, in, in, a, in a more broader sense than maybe some other talents. You could have like some sort of hierarchy of generality of actually you do. It's called this, you know, like uh, the, the, the you can have like at least for in terms of general cog, in terms of cognitive abilities, it's a hierarchy, right? A lot of people don't aren't aware of that. Yeah. You know, that it, um, so the CHC yeah, model. Yeah, I was gonna meant, I was gonna actually say CHC, but I was thinking like, well, no, it's gonna. <laughs> <laughs> right. how, how nerdy do we really want to get? But yeah. <laughs> but that but that's just the idea that that there are sort of like more specialized abilities which are probably served by sort of more specific regions of the brain, but that those yeah. tend to be correlated a little bit, so that you have sort of like the second order, you know, the, the second order uh, factors which contain several of those, and then you've got you know higher order, you know, uh, uh, general factor. It's very. It's not that. I don't think it's that compl- It's that complicated. <laughs> well, that's that's a funny statement. It is, it, it, it's both it's both incredibly complicated and and at the end of the day, not complicated at the same time. Um, so you know, part of my day job is um, I'm on a like a, a a mission. I don't know. That's too strong of a word, but I can't think of any other word. It's place to come up with a new test of imagination that is um, has set differential predictive validity and has just value and utility above and beyond an IQ test. Now, such a test, it's going to be very hard to um, for it to not to have some saturation of G or general <laughs> intelligence. Absolutely, but there, there, I do believe there are there are skill sets and, and mental capacities there that are at least partially distinct. So um, that that's one of our things we're trying to do as well. And I'm okay. By the way, this is really cool, Chris. You said you've softened your views a bit on. Yeah, I've softened. Uh, me too. In a, in a, in in, a, in the opposite direction, in a sense. Yeah, no, in the opposite direction. So I am okay now. Actually, and I, I, I can't, but I'm going to be on record saying this right now: differentiating between general intelligence and creativity. I'm okay differentiating those two because, to me, or, or at least general intelligence and imagination. Because I think you know the, what I would say in like a, in a public sphere is I think you know general intelligence involves a whole set of cognitive processes that are very good at, at ascertaining what is. You know, learning, you know, what is reading comprehension, et cetera. And I think imagination is a set of, of uh, partially overla- non-overlapping uh, set, skill sets associated with what could be that kind of uh, that kind of thinking. So I'm actually OK differentiating these two. But by the way, that's a big – How is big, imagination yeah. different from creativity in your, in your view? Yeah, that I'm sort okay. of curious about what – because people, of course, have yes. been trying to come up with yes. creativity tests for, for decades and – it was sort of somewhat unsatisfying results and in, in you know in, in my view they, they 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 you know they have some reliability and so on but they just don't really seem to you know i don't know get at the the core of something i, I they just leave me with sort of like a vaguely unsatisfied feeling even after i use them in my own research <laughs> so i completely agree and and so we're funding we just we just selected 16 research projects 3 million dollars total um to for there to be new innovative ways of measuring imagination. I'm really excited about some of the approaches. We're going to have our big press release of the projects. So you can see what they are soon. So I can't mention them just yet, but um, I, at least they go beyond. So we, we wanted to make sure that for, for most of the proposal, for all the proposals that they went beyond divergent thinking in some way, you know, there are divergent thinking tests, like how many uses are there for a brick? So I agree with that. Now, let me tell you the way I've been thinking about this, because we just got a paper accepted in uh, nature scientific reports that I think um, presents the framework in a, in a way that makes sense to me. So, you could, I view creativity as a combination of general intelligence and um, imagination, so, okay. or at least the interaction of the two large-scale brain networks that are differentially associated between those two, with those two constructs. 
So we can think of the executive attention network as really strongly tied to um, variation in general intelligence, right? Um, there's so much research supporting that. But we also, um, you know, the recent discovery of the default mode network, um, or I, I call it, you know, in a cute, cutesy way, the imagination network, is associated um, with a different source of variation. And I, and I think that that's a source of variation that is part of creativity. It's necessary. I think it's necessary but not sufficient for creativity. So what you see in people with schizophrenia is very difficult executive functioning, but they are up the kazoo on their default mode network functioning. They're like a walking default mode network. They have trouble distinguishing between reality and fantasy, in fact, which like mm -hmm. BA10, we know, is super important for that, right? Like the, you know, the very tip of the prefrontal cortex, of the frontal cortex is crucial for mm -hmm. distinguishing between fantasy and reality. So those who are just really, really creative are are, are have a very strong capacity to um, uh, to be very flexible in switching between these modes of cognition. So that's sort of how I view it. I view creativity as an umbrella sort of thing that consists of general intelligence as well or executive functioning as well as imagination. And I view imagination as necessary but not sufficient for creativity. So um, I, do you agree it sounds with like I should have applied for it sounds like I should have applied for one of your grants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you should have. <laughs> if anyone turns, if anyone turns it down, you can always throw a hundred thousand my way. I'm kind of doing something similar, you know, really with with social intelligence right now. And, and incidentally, I think so, you know the default the default network is is in a little bit one of the way one of those Rorschach tests, right? Like for some people, yeah. it's the mind wandering network. For some people, it's creativity, imagination. Other people, it's social. That's you know, true. it's sort of like what what does this do? It seems like it's everything but IQ. You know, is another way of. You know, when I think about sort of like what would, a, you know, a, a, what would a large scale brain organization have evolved to do? Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure about imagination and creativity. I think I could be convinced. Like someone who had really thought that through very carefully might be able to convince me. But okay. I, I'm, it's easier for me to convince myself that, um, you know, think, thinking about other people might have been the evolutionary purpose. Now, maybe you can harness a network, you know, that's useful for thinking about other people. And now think about objects and, you know, and, and, you know, animals and imaginary things, you know, and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm not a good enough evolutionary psychologist or evolutionary neuroscientist to sort of sort all this out. Um, but I think it's interesting that sort of this default network is sort of like in a way captured so much imagination, you know, captured so much of people's imagination um, and, and made them, you know, think about it in so many uh, in so many different ways. Um, I, one thing I did want to say is, uh, you know, I, I think um, – you know, one, one metaphor that I find kind of useful for thinking about, you know, intelligence as, as, as defined by general intelligence or IQ is, is sort of your ability to, to use your brain to operate your brain like a computer. Mm. Uh, you know, so your, your ability to do the things that computers are good at, right? Like remember lots of stuff for a short period of time, you know, e easily assimilate new information, uh, you know, do calculations, um, you know, step by step, go through things, you know, like, you know, juggle things, you know, in memory and so on, all, all the kind of stuff that, um, you know, most animals can't do. Um, and, and humans are actually really bad at, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, a, a 10 year old can program a computer to do most of these things better than humans can do. But there's a lot of variation in how well humans can do them inside, you know, inside their own brains. And that's what, you know, IQ is measuring. And maybe there's so much variation in it because it is a relatively recent evolutionary development that we have sort of a domain general working memory and that we're able to learn the meanings of lots of different things and just sort of store them forever in our lives like vocabulary words you don't forget um you know and so on and vocabulary tests it turns out are great are great iq tests as are you know uh tests of basically juggling mental operations like you know working memory and yeah. and so on but you could write a computer program in like 10 lines that could that could kill any end back working memory task yep. you know as high as you want to go right so it's your ability to like use your brain as though it's a 10 line computer program
Um, you know that. You know that. That's <laughs> it's that you, simple and that complex at the same. Exactly time. right, but that but yeah. turns out like that's really easy yeah. for for silicon chips to do and really hard for yeah. the brain with all of its marvels and wonders to do. You know, compared to something like recognizing faces or even you know predicting whether Scott's going to be happy or sad at the end of this interview or something like that. You know that those things are much easier, even though computers would have no idea you know how to do them. You know, that's because that involves messy emotions to really answer that question. But this is this is and I think that's where things you know this is actually a great segue into intuition. What what a perfect segue. Okay. Actually, let's let's segue into like intuition, let's segue into artificial intelligence and try to understand what are the uh, why the to that puzzle you just posed. Um so I mean this is a topic that I'm um, immensely fascinated with. I mean, most people don't realize this because I never I never mentioned this anymore. I never did anything with a degree, but I have a degree in uh, in, in human computer interaction from Carnegie Mellon. And um, I was there was a time my when it was a time in my life when I was like obsessed with art with AI and like you know um, and 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 like fusing human computers and all that stuff. Um, I don't know what happened to that Scott, but um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all my friends went off and got like six figures, you know, jobs right after undergrad, and I went to grad school and made like one figure. But, but they're not they're not here interviewing me today. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> You're missing out. So, so Jeff Hawkins has this theory of intelligence. I don't know if you've read his book on intelligence. Have you? I haven't. I haven't read it yet. I, I've sort of heard of the, the. I actually, oh, it's one of the many books I own, but haven't read. Okay. Yeah. So he he really argues intelligence all all comes down to pattern recognition. He's really big into this this idea of uh and and of pattern recognition. As we know, like artificial intelligence is very good at um, visual. Um, I wouldn't say really good, but you know, it's 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 okay at um, at like lower level pattern recognition. Um, it gets very, but you know, our our vision system is like infinitely better, right, than than an AI computer. Um, so, but there's like there's pattern recognition that's conscious, and there's pattern recognition that's unconscious. And this was the basis for for my dissertation. I was fascinated to see if there are individual differences in implicit learning, which I think is another form of pattern recognition. And and what was by the way, you were you were immensely helpful back. We're talking like ten years ago, like the first time we ever talked, and you were very supportive of my dissertation. So I really appreciate that. Um, and I, you know, I just I I was fascinated to find that. Implicit learning, individual differences in implicit learning are independent of individual differences in IQ, at least somewhat. And there's there's actually been further research on this topic. Some people have replicated some of those findings, and people are still doing research on statistical or individual differences in statistical learning. So, but this suggests to me that we have these different systems. We have like this in, this intuitive probabilistic um, system that automatically soaks up like the probabilistic real structure of the world and stuff. But then we also have this conscious system. That we have like access – it's almost like IQ or general intelligence or fluid reasoning. Like people are really good at Raven's advanced progressive matrices are able to somehow like access consciously to make a decision. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think um, you know the, the kind of intelligence if, – if Hawkins says that intelligence is pattern recognition, yeah. to me, the kind of intelligence he's talking about is the kind of intelligence that lies behind – you know, what we might call, broadly speaking, intelligent behavior, sort of the, the things yeah. that animals are able to do, you know, to survive and, and thrive and so on, you know, involves a certain kind of intelligence, right? Recognizing their food, you know, recognizing their predators, recognizing their mates, you know, you know, do motor behavior. Like there's all kinds of incredibly complex stuff that is hard for computers to do. And it's legitimate to call that a kind of intelligence. And that's what artificial intelligence has been trying to get computers to do for a long time, right? It turns out that the things that, that we call intelligence 
that are measured by intelligence tests, you know, are easy are, for are computers. Of, yeah, are, 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 for pretty, computers. You know, are pretty easy for computers, right? You know, and so the, the early, you know, AI guys made a little bit of a mistake when they said, if we could just solve computer chess, you know, then we, you know, game over, right? Well, it turns out that was sort of like round one of game the game, on. right? That was game like on. the easy level. Yeah, exactly, right. That was the easy level of the game, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and even with all the progress in deep learning and so on, you've still got, you know, networks that are trained to recognize cats, but then they, you know, they misclassify, you know, completely other things as, as cats and so on. It's, 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 it's a hard, um, yeah. uh, it's a hard problem, but I, I think it's legitimate to call that, uh, an intelligence of a kind. And, and by the way, I think your, your finding was, was exactly, was exactly right about, uh, you know, psychometric intelligence, IQ tests, not being very related at all to implicit learning. And yeah. I think there are many other cognitive abilities, uh, abilities of the brain, which are not related to IQ, you know, so that this is, you know, I, I, I don't know if you ever go on Quora, the website Quora or not, but there are a lot of people on Quora who always ask questions about IQ as though they, they have the lay view that sort of IQ is, you know, the only thing that determines the mental ability of a person, right? That sort of like I, IQ is everything there. And I, I, I don't know sort of why they, why they think this, um, yeah. uh, but uh, it's clearly not the case, right? You've got implicit learning. I've, I found a while ago that uh, face recognition and I've yeah. many replications of this face recognition ability is not related to, uh, to IQ. Um, you find, you find variation in that. You presented that in my class. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, you know, they're all like, they, they, they all have small correlations, right? Like when you mentioned earlier, sort of like the saturation of general intelligence, these things I've been working on, on coming up with these social intelligence tests. And it turns out it's really hard to make, a, you know, to make a test of any kind that people who, you know, score high on, on IQ tests don't also have a little bit of an edge, you know, don't seem to have a little bit of an edge on. Um, but some things are just much less related to intelligence than others. And, and implicit learning and face recognition so, seems to be... Social cognition. I think a lot of the things that come from the default mode network, you know? Well, that's what, I'm, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm working on now. But if you look at the ways people try to measure, you know, social ability, you know, um, th those tests do low... I mean, those tests method do also variance. measure intelligence. I think that's method variance issue. I think you mean because they're asking questions that are executive. coming words? No, no, because they're things that tap executive that rely heavily on executive functioning. They're like on. They're still on the spot, uh, timed. You know, most of them are timed tests. So I think you still get you get the executive function, you know, aspect in there as well. That's why I, I think. I, I get the sense that it's. I get the sense that untimed tests, you know, wouldn't make like t taking out the timing wouldn't really make that much of a difference. I, well, I, what about like actually like putting people though like in front of each other is what I'm saying. Like if we're talking about like social interactions, like. I want more tests that where you actually like have people interact with each other. So I, I my, my here's my view, and it's it's not really based on too much data, but but my view is that you know you're, you're right in a sense that a test of looking at pictures and pushing keys is going to be you know probably more g loaded, more more of an IQ test, even if the pictures are human faces and the keys correspond to you know emotions. That's probably going to be a bit more of a measure of IQ than having someone interact and seeing like whether they, you know, with someone else and seeing whether they, you know, you know, make the right decision or something like that. But but still, even in that latter case, you know, like face to face interaction, very naturalistic and so on, I think you're still going to find some effect of, of general intelligence, not zero. You're going to find some effect of general intelligence. And that's something about what's kind of fascinating about it is the idea that there is this sort of some, something that general. I mean, you know, like if, yeah. if you um, if you control for everything else that you can possibly think of. I yeah. bet, you know, Michael Jordan was a little smarter than the other basketball <laughs> players. You know, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I shouldn't, you know, I, I shouldn't contradict myself and try to explain individuals. Right. And so on. But I, I bet you would find that like the players who score more points 
you know, across all levels of basketball are probably on average a little smarter than the players who score fewer points. And why would that be? Well, maybe they spend time reflecting on how they played and they're better able to sort of remember and think through like some strategic aspects of the decisions they made. And it's not all a physical game. You know, everything involves some kind of mental challenge. And, and, and the idea that we can separate out, you know, executive function, working memory, you know, uh, planning and things like that from from other things is a little bit of a myth because almost everything humans do involve some of those some of those things. Well, wow, you said so many different things that <laughs> Holy cow, Chris, Chris, Chris. Uh, first of all, I'm really glad that you um, made the correction when you made the Michael Jordan example and then and then phrased it in a more scientifically accurate way because I, I you know, you know, I, something I'm very passionate about is wholeheartedly not um, assuming, you know, someone's potential, an individual's potential for, for success or something just based on the IQ score. So, um, but, but I think that you're probably correct when we're in terms of averages. So I'm glad you made that quick correction. Um, the second thing. So I think that, you know, as much as I've studied G and really try to understand what the G factor for listeners, the G factor is general is basically general intelligence. Um, the, the thing that I've, I've, I've learned is that it is so general because almost everything we do in life that doesn't involve being completely asleep <laughs> taps into executive functioning. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that you're in, in a deep sense, you're absolutely right. Like it's very, it's gonna be very hard pressed to find any awake activity that um, doesn't involve some level of conscious integration um, of, of holding something in working memory of, you know, all you, and you go down the list of all the kinds of uh, cognitive functions that comprise the G factor. So I think in that sense, it's very, very difficult um, to find any test that doesn't significantly uh, or doesn't have a positive relationship to G or general intelligence, which is in large reason what spurred me for my dissertation is that I was like, could maybe something unconscious, you know, be the thing? Could that be right. the thing? So, so, so I think I think we're on the same page with that. Yeah. And this could have something to do with why you see things like, you know, general intelligence being correlated with longevity you know, or, or with health, right? There could be lots of pathways, but one of them could be something as simple as, you know, the better your executive function and the working memory, the, your working memory, the less likely you are to forget, you know, to transfer some piece of information from your nurse to your doctor that you thought you should make sure the doctor hears, you know, when you're in the hospital after an accident someday or something like that. And you accumulate enough of those, you know, incidents over a lifetime where, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a breakdown in working memory or executive function or something like that cause you to like forget one thing or transpose one thing or something like that. And, you know, the buildup over a long period of time, you know, could be, you know, could be significant. And that's, that's, I think you, you, you make, you know, you, you make the excellent point that there's, there's always a role for proper executive function in almost any, you know, waking activity you could be doing it, except perhaps one you're not aware of. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. Right. You know. Um, yeah. And I I think that it does matter though the dependent measure that you're what you're what you're trying to predict. So what I found really interesting was this paper that um, Colin DeYoung and I and uh, and other collaborators published in Journal of Personality recently, showing that IQ was essentially irrelevant to predicting artistic, you know, predicting variation in artistic creative achievement. And I think that's that's a non-trivial finding. Do you know what I mean? Because I mean, I mean, there might be some scientists who think it's a trivial finding, but I think you and I would agree that you know there are so many different um, ways of um, expressing yourself in this world, of adding value to this world, of doing great in this world, and they're they're differentially related to how much they recruit general intelligence brain structures. 
Yeah, well, I, I think this is a good time to go back and 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 just, and for me to go back and say that when I say that you know if if I assert that I bet there is some small contribution of uh, intel- general intelligence to creative achievement, it doesn't mean that I'm saying that that's the biggest contribution. It could be that it's like right. you know five percent of the variance or something like that, or two percent right. of the variance or something. It's just that it's not it's not going to be zero. And and I'll I'll bet you that I mean by the way, I just met Colin recently. He's he's a great you know he's a great guy. Um, he's awesome. Uh, you know he's you know you're you you know him you know a thousand times more than I do, but he he does really interesting stuff. You should have him on if you haven't yet. Um, and uh, I plan to. Um, I think that, you know, even in that case, like, I, I think we have to be worried about, um, we have to be worried about things like range restriction, um, and, and measurement, right? So like if, if we measure creative achievement, you know, some of the ways of measuring creative achievement, as you know, involve sort of like counting up external recognitions of creativity, like, right. Did you ever win a prize? You know, did you ever sell a, a work, you know, uh, and, and, and things like that and the ability to sort of negotiate, you know, that environment, of, you know, entering contests, you know, remembering to do things on time, you know, getting your work done and so on might be separate from the level of creativity, inspiration, technical skill, all of those things. So, you know, it could be another case of where, you know, when, when you try to you know, measure the relationship be- between two things, it's still going to sort of be there because uh, because of the same, you know, sort of uh, thing we've been talking about. But that doesn't mean that like your IQ score should have any sort of determination over whether you decide to pursue art. Right. That would be the stupidest thing in the world to decide whether or not to pursue art because of your IQ score. I would you know, be more that, likely to, to use the basis, the extent to which you have artistic talent. But maybe, yeah, even, right. maybe I mean, even not then. I probably would get some hate mail from artists for saying that. But um, but I would be more likely to use that as an indicator than IQ. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's, see, there's um, – well, the, the other thing, of course, is that uh, there's so much of a huge – you know, com- compared to the, the, how well you do something the first time you try it or even the first 10 times or 20 times, there's such a huge range of what's possible, right? I mean, we, we know that, like, look, so- someone learns how to play chess, you know, they get a rating of 100 on the chess rating scale, but then ultimately they could get a rating of 2,000 or 2,500. And, and what that means, every 200 points means you've got a three to one chance of beating the person 200 points below you. So you go from 100 to 300, you've suddenly become good enough to to win, you know, 75% of the time against your old self. Then you go to 500 and now it's 75%. Of this. And there are like so many levels of that that humans can get to just with the brains we've got, right? That probably don't have that much to do with intelligence, right? It's good to start out being a higher IQ person, but you know, the, the, the higher IQ, the high IQ, super high IQ person playing his first game of chess, you know, compared to the low IQ person playing his first game of chess is, is, is no difference compared to like, once you've literally learned how to do something with the first time you do it, there's so much of a bigger jump that you can make, you know, through training and practice and, you know, and, and experience and so on than the variation you would see just in, in the level of, you know, incoming talent that people have that it's, it's the talent cannot possibly be a limitation. You know, it's only a buy, it's only a buy, it's only a bias or a nudge, you know, in terms of what, you know, how easily you learn things and pick up on them and so on. Right. Rate of learning. No, I, I, I agree. Um, so one of your this is related to one of your critiques of the ten thousand hours rule. I'm putting this in quotes, but you can't see it because there isn't video. I mean, you could see it, but my listeners can't see it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So you know, and by the way, uh, I can't find in in K. Anders Ericsson's papers he uses that term. It looks like something that Malcolm Gladwell coined. 
Um, so this ten thousand. I, I think Erickson has an article even where he says, "Like, yes, stop blaming correct. this on me. It's journalists correct. who do, did it." Correct. <laughs> correct. And now you had this little bit of a of a intellectual version of a, a boxing match with uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I found that that very um, very interesting to watch. Um, I was like eating my popcorn, you know, like watching this go on. <laughs> um, um, one of your criticisms of the way that. Um, that popular, popular writers, including Mark Gladwell, has represented the 10,000 hours or, or, or the nature of success. Um, well, you know, what, what are some of your beasts of that? I, th- I, think you've, I think a lot of things you've already said relate to it, but I thought I'd give you a chance to speak more openly about that. Uh, well, I, I guess as far as the 10,000-hour rule goes, I, I think it's, you know, it, to, from what I know, it's 100% correct that we shouldn't blame that on uh, on Erickson, maybe he said something like that to Gladwell once in an interview or something like that, you know, or maybe it was Gladwell's, you know, you know, way of summarizing how he interpreted, you know, Erickson's work. I do think Erickson is pretty far out, you know, on the tip of the view that, you know, the, the nature doesn't matter, that there's no such thing as talent except talent to like height for basketball players yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. Or talent's IQ not, or, or whatever. Talent's not the same thing as nature. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, well, in 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 this um, well, in in um, uh, in, in this debate, it would, would be would group be group, grouped in the same you know in, okay. in the same place. So I, I do think Erickson, you know, for all his protestations, you know, he does take a very sort of extreme environmentalist uh, you know view and about particular kinds of practice being all that matter and, and so on. And from from the work that I've seen, uh, it seems like you know there's a lot of variability in how much deliberate practice people put in to reach master levels of skill. Uh, and one wonders then what explains why some people can get, you know, in 4,000 hours to a place that some people take 10 or 12,000 or other people never get to, um, you know, then we're back to talent and, you know, and, and, and other things and preparation for preparation for learning and, um, you know, and, uh, and so on. And I, I thought that, you know, one of the, you know, I, I thought that uh, Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers, which is where he wrote about this, one of one of his very many best-selling books. And by the way, I own and have read every one of his books, and I will buy every other book he ever publishes, um, and I will read it. Um, so, uh, I, because I, fer- I personally always find out about interesting things from any well-written uh, book, you know, about social science or psychology or whatever. I find out things I didn't know before. Um, I, I think you have to go and check up on them, you know, and like look yeah. at the sources, you know, and make you right. form your own opinions and so on. Right. But I find them very enjoyable ways to to, to learn about stuff. But in, in that book, so in Outliers, I think he does, you know, he, he puts a big thumb on the scale of, um, uh, you know, environmental factors uh, determining people's ultimate success um, when he doesn't really, um, uh, and I think he doesn't really give, you know, much attention uh, to variations in talent or cognitive ability. Um, and it's, in fact, really hard to do a study that would actually let you disentangle those things. Because if you do a retrospective study of people who achieved very high levels of performance, you may well find that the chess grandmasters put in more deliberate practice than the mere chess masters. You know, and what what could explain that? Well, maybe it's the extra practice that made them into grandmasters, or maybe they were doing better at the game early on, so that increased their motivation to practice more. You know, or they started out with more talent. You know, and that made it easier for them to put in the practice because they were getting higher returns from the practice because the the more talent enables you to get more 
you know, learning out of a one hour or a two hour, three hour study session or something. There, there's so many things that I think the data don't really let us explain. So we can't settle on sort of like one extreme interpretation and then build our build our lives and, and our social arrangements around that. That's part of my objection, I guess. Yeah, that's great. I, I agree with a lot. I, th- I thought I was going to be like disagreeing with you more. I don't know why I thought that, but um, no, I mean, <laughs> well, is- it could be. It could be that when I, you know, it could be that on Facebook and on Twitter, I say things, you know, more, you know, more, more, more categorically than I do in in longer in longer conversations. Uh, you, you I don't, make I don't know. Cry on Facebook. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody else, everybody else is always so happy on Facebook. I'm just trying to balance it out. <laughs> um, look, you know, I want to bring something up with you that's kind of been half baked on my mind, but I want to try to articulate it. Something that's been bothering me about the way that researchers, scientists use the um, equate um, IQ with the the word intelligence, or or they'll say like smart. You know, they'll they'll go into shorthand and start saying smartness or brain power and stuff. Well, hopefully scientists don't use the word brain power because it's a horrible word. But um, yeah, I, I feel like something that bothers me personally about that from a justice perspective. And, and also from a, a truth perspective, is I'm not convinced that the low end of that poll is stupidity. I actually think that we need a new scale of of stupidity, where the high end is maybe like low stupidity. Do you know what I mean? But but so for me, for general, so for me, for me, low general cognitive ability is not equivalent of stupid. And I think that's something that is a really – I think it's it, it needs to be said more, you know, especially with how we treat children and treat people with certain IQ scores. You know, I think there are people with lower IQ scores that um, – you know, I think that there are people with high IQ scores that are incredibly ignorant and say really stupid things in a consistent alpha reliability sort of way. <laughs> and, if, and as far as I'm concerned, no matter how like, high your IQ are, is, you're stupid, <laughs> you know, in my view. So anyway, I, this, is, this is the first time I've ever kind of talked about this out loud, but I'd love to hear your thoughts if there's any sense to what I'm saying? Well, I, I, I guess I have two thoughts. One, one is that, you know, the, the language we use in, you know, casual conversation among adults, mm-hmm. you know, is not necessarily the language we want to train, you know, children to use to think about the world, right? So if, if I say, yes. you know, yes. if, I, if, I say to, if I say to my wife, you know, boy, you know, you know, so-and-so, something stupid today at work, work. That's much different from, you know, encouraging your children or not correcting them when they say, Oh, that kid never does, you know, that kid never does well on the vocabulary test. He's stupid. You know, like those are two completely different, you know, things. And I think it's okay. And I, and I think it's okay to use, you know, negative and critical words and so on when we're, you know, when we're talking, you know, when we're talking as adults and especially when we're talking about, you know, acts, acts and not people, right? Because even the smartest people can do stupid things, you know, and, uh, and, and so on. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's nice to have colorful language and not to be sort of like trying to take care with every word we say and, and, and you know, and, and sterilize all of our sentences, you know, so that they can't possibly offend even people who aren't listening, mm-hmm. um, you know? Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, so that's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I think um, if I were making a stupidity scale, I would make the high scores be, be, be lots of stupidity, right? Like let's go all the way right. and like, let's make okay. the high scores be lots Fine. of stupidity. I'm down and, with and that. maybe what you're talking about is sort of, <laughs> it, it reminds me of um, like the inverse maybe of uh, Keith Stanovich's, you know, right, rationality, right, right. rationality, you know, attempt to measure yeah. rationality. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Like I, 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 I really admire, you know, Keith Stanovich is one of my favorite researchers. I, I admire, you know, everything he's done. I'm not sure he's going to have really that easy a time ultimately disentangling rational decision making from IQ yeah. um, because the kinds of problems that that, that look at, um, you know, rationality. 
uh, in decision making are very heavily verbal and involve, you know, manipulating quantities and, and thinking about functioning yeah. or thinking about things that typically, you know, are acquired in like late college or graduate school curriculum, you know, like probabilities and things, you yes. know, and things like that. Right. You know, yes. so I'm not sure he's going to succeed there, but I think conceptually he's in the right place in that, you know, you can imagine all the geniuses, you know, at, at Lehman Brothers, you know, who, yeah. who blew their blew themselves up. Um, you know, through a series of what probably it's fair enough to say were stupid decisions, right? And maybe you know, and maybe char- characterizing in in more granular detail what was stupid about those decisions might be a little better than calling them stupid. You know, maybe lack of foresight, you know, impatience, excessive risk taking, you know, failure to consider alternative options, you know, be you know, following the herd. I mean, all of those things are, are kind of things maybe that you know can be characterized in some ways as facets of stupidity um, in the modern in the modern environment. That's just the example that comes to mind. You may, you may have completely other ones in mind, but certainly those guys were all scoring high in IQ tests. They wouldn't have got hired by Lehman Brothers, you know, most of them, if they weren't people who scored high in IQ tests. But the way you're talking suggests that you do tie IQ so fundamentally to the the word smart. And so I would actually challenge um, a little bit of what you said in the sense that like, you know, the idea of like smart people doing dumb things. In my view, if you're doing a lot of dumb things, like, like, like I don't care what your IQ score is. Like you're like that. You're like like to me, I, you're I'm, no longer qualified to be smart yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm willing to I'm willing to divorce the two at some point. You know, um, in the real world, like like stupid as stupid does would be like a really like shorthand way of saying that, which is funny because I'm quoting. Um, this this is actually very fitting to my point. I'm quoting uh, Forrest Gump there. Didn't he say stupid is what stupid does? And you know, you, when, you see when, a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, you see a lot of people like. With low IQ, so I mean, a lot of the implication here is that you can see people with low IQ. I think you can still be highly intelligent. So I think, or or at least be highly smart. Um, And and but of course, we're me and you when we're using these words, like we we it's kind of like a wink, wink. Like we know that we we have the scientific knowledge to be able to differentiate. Like we 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 both on the same page of what general intelligence is. You know, I'm just conceptually saying I don't think that your general cognitive ability needs to be so intimately tied to real world conceptions of smartness and stupidness. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, well yeah. maybe what needs maybe what needs to happen is that that it would it would be nice if we could wave our wand and sort of you know make people in general. Yeah. Uh, like all the people on Quora who are obsessed with IQ, yeah. make yeah. them more aware of the reality yes. of what IQ yeah. tests measure yeah. and, and what that and, and what that construct you know means and doesn't mean. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I personally like tend to when I throw around the word smart, I'm sort of meaning you know intelligent in the sense of you know scores well on measures of general intelligence. But right. but you know the, l- language is language, and there are you know 20 different definitions for smart. You yeah, know, I'm sure just not, like that, you know, that's not exactly my definition. Um, yeah. And so that's exactly your but point. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. use that, but I wouldn't use that in, um, I wouldn't use that in, you know, I wouldn't use that even in writing a popular book or a popular article, you know, let alone in the classroom or in a journal article. You know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, right. I, I wouldn't, right. use, I, but that's just a way that I sort of tend to, to think about it. And maybe one reason I do is because I, 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 I do try, you know, one thing I've, I think I've learned from behavioral science from, you know, all, all the time I've been in behavioral science is, um, it, it's sort of like a constant – it's a constant struggle to try to think like a behavioral scientist in everyday life um, and, yeah. and not, you know, and, and not think like and, – and not think like, you know, just a regular person. And it's not to say that yeah. regular people are dumb or anything like that. But behavioral science, if it, if it means anything, means that we have learned some things scientifically about human behavior that we should then be able to turn around and use in our lives. So, 
you know, I try to think about intelligence in daily life as the kind of intelligence that's measured by IQ tests, because that's a very productive, you know, branch of of behavioral science. And that's why I think I get a little bit bothered when people use intelligence to sort of mean, you know, any, any, any quality that that's good that, you know, that, that we, that we like about, about people, um, or that helps them, you know, solve some of their problems. Uh, you know, I would never say that my electrician has electrical intelligence, right? You know, I mean, even if he's a really the best electrician in the world, I would say he's a really good electrician. You know, he's incredibly skilled at his job, you know, or I might even say he has a lot of talent, you know, you know, if I think for some reason that he's the kind of electrician, you know, who was always talented at this, although I'm not really sure where I would get the evidence for that, because all I can see is like how, you know, what kind of job he does on my house. But I, I like to try to be a little bit more precise in, you know, in, in that way. So, um, you know, but I agree with you that it's, it's a, it's a horrible mistake you know, to call people stupid because they seem to be the kind of people who would score low on IQ tests yeah. and, you know, and, and especially even even worse to, you know, differentially treat them that way, um, yeah. you know, with respect to like opportunities and, and so on. Unfortunately, there's got to be some, you know, there's limited resources, right? There's 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 scarcity, you know, economics is a real thing. You know, so there's got to be some allocation of uh, of resources. We don't you know, we don't have unlimited resources for everyone, but you, you can't at the same time just say that, like how people score on tests, you know, set some kind of ceiling or rules right. out, you know, rules out possibilities, which is all the more reason why we need to we need to do the testing intelligently. And that that's my whole point. You know, well, that's a big point is that we need to be really intelligent. How you know what kind of data we are gathering and what kind of questions we're trying to answer. Um, to solve for yeah. a person's needs, um, you know, I jokingly, but not I uh, half jokingly, um, but I may someday do this. Um, was talking to Adam when I was talking to Adam Grant, and I said people would be shocked, but to hear this, but I think I want to write a book someday on why IQ matters, <laughs> or 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 like write a book on like I just IQ because I and basically popularize Nick McIntosh's book because like I'm so well ground, I'm so grounded to like like knowing that perspective and knowing what it is when scientists are talking about it. And these misconceptions, by the way, you know, they drive me bonkers too. Like these, there's so many misconceptions. I actually think there'd be great utility and value for me to put aside all of my, you know, maybe you know, political beliefs and humanitarian and activist beliefs for, for a moment. Um, and, and talk about what the science of IQ means. And then maybe in the last couple of chapters, maybe add in back in all that stuff and, and, and say what the implications are for activism. Anyway, I, I might do that someday. I've, I've, yeah. I've thought of, I've thought of writing the same, the same book actually. And you know, one, one point that I think is important, you know, would be important to make is that like, let, let's say you're doing, you know, a sociological study or something like that. And you're trying to, you know, understand, you know, why do some people, you know, drop out of school and, and, and some people not or something like that? Well, you could load all kinds of predictive variables into your, your model. But if you didn't put in, you know, some measure of IQ, you'd probably be missing out, you know, on some relevant factor, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's not going to explain everything. But if you don't include that in your model, you know, this is just the way this is the way multivariate analysis works, right? If you don't include that in your model, you may, you know, you, you may put weight on things that, you know, don't have the effects you think they do in, uh, you know, in the actual, in the actual world. So, you know, but that, at the same time, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be some other world in which things were different, right? So, so IQ is incredibly important for understanding like the world we have, but it doesn't, you know, determine everything about the world the future would be just like saying like, you know, myopia is incredibly un important for understanding, you know, maybe, you know, how people did in life, you know, 500 years ago, but then once they invented glasses and they became available for everybody, it no longer determines those things. When we're talking about group averages, we're talking about individual variation. You know, it is really uh, you'd be you'd be you'd be wise to put IQ into your regression variable. But when it comes to within 
um, variation and all the different ways that an individual person can mix and match, you know, things to achieve things in life, then you start getting some um, very individualized sort of intelligence. So anyway, I don't know if that made sense at all. I think there's a lot of misconception to correct, um, you know, about this concept of, of intelligence, because it has for some reason, you know, gotten into everybody's like everyday thinking about you know, about the world. Uh, and that can have a lot of, you know, that can have a lot of consequences if they're not thinking straight about it. So I, I'm 100% with you there. I really appreciate this interview, Chris, and I'm going to spread this far and wide because maybe, um, maybe this will help, you know, correct some misconceptions. So thank you so much for your time today. Okay, I'm looking forward to hearing it myself. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. go to thepsychologypodcast.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.